Chapter 18 of Charles de Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriDocs.org. Recording by Dory Smith. Charles the Bold, Last Duke of Burgundy by Ruth Putnam. Chapter 18. Cologne, Lorraine, and Alsace. 1473 through 1474. Late as it was in November, the weather was still very mild, and as the emperor and duke traveled in opposite directions, neither the former as he went down to Cologne, nor the latter as he passed up the valley of the Moselle to that of the Elle, was hindered by autumn storms. The summer of 1473 had been marked by unprecedented heat and a prolonged drought. Forest fires raged unchecked on account of the dearth of water and, for the same reason, the mills stood still. The grape crops, indeed, were prodigious, but the vintage was not profitable because the wine had a tendency to sour. Gentle rains in September prepared the ground for an untimely fertility. Trees blossomed in, though some fruits withered prematurely, cherries actually ripened. Thus the Rhinelands presented a pleasant appearance as Charles rode to Lorraine. His first pause was at Thionville in Luxembourg where he stayed about a fortnight and received ambassadors from Hungary, Poland, Venice, England, Denmark, Brittany, Ferrara, the Palatinate, and Cologne. The result of his conference with the last named was a declaration on the Duke's part which seriously affected his later career. The condition of Cologne must be touched on as an essential part of this narrative. The late Duke of Burgundy had attempted to pursue a line of policy in regard to the ecclesiastical elections in the Diocese of Cologne, that had succeeded in Liege and in Utrecht. In 1463, he had tried to force the chapter to elect his candidate. They had refused to follow his leading, but their own choice, Robert, brother of the Elector Palatine, did not prove a congenial chief, and the new prelate turned to Philip for aid when he found his chapter disposed to restrict both his revenues and his temporal authority. Later, in 1467, as the audacity of his opponents increased, the archbishop appealed to his brother, the elector, and to Charles of Burgundy. The latter was busy in France, but he wrote a sententious letter to Cologne, exhorting both chapter and city to be obedient to their chosen spiritual and lay lord. This intervention was resented. The breach widened between Robert and his people, culminating in actual hostilities. The chapter took possession of the town of Neuss, accepted Hermann of Hesse as their protector, and sent an embassy to Rome to state their grievances. The elector aided his brother, and the belligerent parties grew in strength. The city of Cologne wavered for a space, undecided which cause to espouse, and finally chose the chapter's side, signing a five years' alliance with that body, which had officially renounced allegiance to Robert, pending the judgment of Pope and Emperor on the dissension. Such was the state of affairs when Charles entered into possession of Gilders and manifested a disposition to interest himself in Cologne. He informed the chapter that he was greatly displeased with their contumely. To Cologne, he said, be neutral. But the burghers showed so little inclination to heed his neighborly advice that he tried harsher measures and permitted Cologne merchants to be molested in his domains. In 1473, all hostilities were suspended in the hopes of imperial intervention. While Charles was still in Gilders, Robert paid him a visit, held long conferences with him, and probably received promises of future aid for he had an air of arrogance when he returned from the interview. During a sojourn of Duke and Emperor at Treves, a papal legate, the Bishop of Falsenbrone, 
arrived from Rome with plenary powers to settle Cologne affairs, and his measures were endorsed by Charles in a letter from Treves. For a time, Frederick III seemed inclined to refrain from interference, then something influenced him in another direction. When he arrived at Cologne in November, he received a warm welcome and costly gifts, which he repaid by conferring a massive privileges on his good city, cheap and easy benefits. But he did not prove an efficient arbitrator, simply postponing any decision from day to day, though he was begged to settle all difficulties before Charles should attempt to relieve him of the trouble. True, Charles was detained elsewhere, but he no longer felt the need of conciliating the emperor, and at Thionville, on December 11, 1473, he issued a manifesto declaring that his friend Robert was entirely in the right, his opponents in the wrong. As these latter defied papal legate and arbitrator duly authorized to settle the points of dispute, he, Charles of Burgundy, would constitute himself defender of the insulted archbishop. At the same time, he dispatched Etienne de la Vigne to check the encroachments of the insolent rebels. The declaration emboldened Robert to defy the emperor's summons to meet him and the papal legate. They both declared that they would take measures to bring him to obedience, but Frederick did not wish to tarry longer at Cologne. In January, he took his departure, having directed Hermann of Hesse to protect that see against all aggression. Apparently, at that time, in spite of the manifesto, there was no formal treaty between Charles and Robert, but there are two drafts for such a treaty in existence, wherein the former pledged himself to force chapter, nobles, and city to submission, in consideration of the sum of 200,000 florins, while the archbishop gave permission to his ally to garrison all strongholds, including Cologne. Pending his autumn sojourn in the Upper Rhinelands, Charles had, therefore, plans regarding Cologne definitely in mind. Lorraine this duchy was even more interesting to Charles than Cologne, and there were many matters in its regard which demanded his urgent attention in 1473. It, too, was a pleasant territory, and conveniently adjacent to Burgundian lands. A natural means of annexation had been considered by Charles in the proposed marriage between Nicholas, Duke of Lorraine, and Mary of Burgundy. When that project was abandoned to suit Charles's pleasure, he retained the friendship of his rejected son-in-law until the latter's death in the spring of 1473. So unexpected was this event that there was the usual suspicion of poisoning, and this crime, too, was charged to the account of Louis XI, apparently without foundation. Certainly that monarch reaped no immediate advantage from the death, for the family to whom the succession passed was more friendly to Burgundy than to France. The heir to the childless Nicholas was his aunt Yolanda of Anjou, daughter of old King René of Anjou, sister to the unfortunate Margaret, late Queen of England, and widow of the Duke of Vaudemont. The Council of Lorraine lost no time in acknowledging Yolanda as their duchess. She hastened to Nancy, the capital, with her son René, aged 22, where they were received hospitably, and then Yolanda formally abdicated in favor of the young man, who was duly accepted as Duke of Lorraine. Now, there was a large party of Burgundian sympathizers in Nancy, and it was probably owing to their pressure that strong links were at once forged between Charles and the new sovereign of the duchy. The apprehension, lest the former should protect the land as he had the heritage of his namesake, little Charles of Gelders, was expressed by the timorous, but their counsels were overweighted, and on October 15th, René accepted a treaty whose terms were very favorable to Burgundy. In exchange for being protector, 
an office that the emperor had already been asked to change into suzerainty, René cemented an alliance, offensive and defensive, with Charles, giving the latter full permission to march his forces across the Rhine. Further, he pledged himself to appoint as officials in all important places on the route men bound by oath to the Duke of Burgundy. Yes, more, these were discharged from fidelity to René in case he abandoned Burgundian interests. Yolanda of Vaudemont endorsed these articles by adding her signature to that of her son. Charles feared, however, that the provisions might not be adhered to by the Lorrainers, so humiliating were the terms, and exacted in addition the signatures of the chief nobles. On November 18th, 74 of these gentlemen attested their approval of an act that practically delivered their land to a stranger, evidence that they doubted the ability of their hereditary chief and preferred Burgundy to France. There is a story that Charles tried other methods than diplomacy before he got the better of the young duke in this bargain, that he actually had him stolen away from the castle of Joinville, where he was staying with his mother. Louis promptly came forward and arrested a nephew of the emperor, a student in the University of Paris, and kept him as hostage until the release of René. Rumor, too, asserts that there was a treaty of Joinville, wherein René asserted his friendship with Louis, which was intermitted by his relations with Charles, to be resumed later. That also seems to be improbable. The formal alliance with Louis did not come then, though the king took immediate care to build up a party in his behalf in Lorraine and to keep himself informed of the progress of the new regime. From Thionville, Charles journeyed on to Nancy, where he was welcomed by his protege outside the city walls, and the two rode in together as the duke and the emperor had entered Treves. Charles had been so long keeping up a show of obsequiousness which he did not feel that, undoubtedly, he enjoyed again being the first personage. He refused, however, to accept the young man's hospitality and spent the two days of his sojourn in the house of a certain Mahurdi, where he felt more at ease in his conferences with Lorrainers willing to proceed further to the disadvantage of their new sovereign. The Allies certainly became more exigent. In various towns on the Moselle, Epinal, Charmes, Domper, etc., the Lorraine soldiers were replaced by Burgundians. This immediate and arrogant use of the rights he had wrested from the Duke of Lorraine alienated many who had been warm for Burgundy. René himself admired Charles as Maximilian had done. The strong man exercised a fascination over both youths, but the Duke did not turn this admiration into real friendship, underestimating the character of his protege. His measures, too, were taken without the slightest consideration for local feeling. Garrison after garrison was installed and commanded to obey his officers alone, while the soldiers were allowed to levy their own rations, equivalent to raids on a friendly country. As always, the agglomeration of mercenary companies was difficult to control. The Duke did not succeed in having those remote from his jurisdiction kept in due restraint. Complaints began to pour into his headquarters. Public sentiment shifted day by day. The Burgundian became the personification of a public foe. Before Charles proceeded on his way to Alsace, René had begun to lose his admiration, and it was not long before he impatiently awaited an opportunity to break with his too doughty protector. Alsace. During the four years that Charles had delayed in coming to look at the result of the bargain of 1469 in the Rhine Valley, his lieutenant, Peter von Hagenbach, had given the inhabitants reason to regret the easygoing absentee Austrian seigneurs. 
Much had been done, undoubtedly, in restraining the lawlessness of the robber barons. The roads were well policed and safety was assured to travelers. I spy was the motto blazoned on the livery of the forces led by Hagenbach up and down the land until he had unearthed lurking vagabonds. It was acknowledged that gold and silver could be carried openly from place to place and that night journeys were as safe as day. Still, this advantageous change had not won popularity for the man who wrought it. Perhaps the people thought it less burdensome to make their own little bargains with highwaymen or petty nobles, a law unto themselves, than to meet the rigorous requisitions of the Burgundian tax collector. It was the country that had profited most by the new administration. The small towns had long enjoyed great independence and had shown ability in managing their own affairs. They wanted no interference. Not liked by those whom he had really protected, Hagenbach was absolutely hated by the burghers who felt his iron hand, without acknowledging that its pressure had more good than evil in it. Then there were the neighbors to be considered. The Swiss had hated Sigismund and all Austrians, and had been prepared to prefer Burgundy as a power in the Rhinelands. But Hagenbach took no pains to win their friendship. His insolent fashion of referring to them as fellows or rascals added to the acts of aggression, unchecked if not condoned by him aroused bitter dislike in him in the confederated cantons and in their allies Bern, Mulhouse, etc. By 1473, there was a growing sentiment in Helvetia that they would be happier if Austria had her own again, while the uneasiness in the cities that stood alone had greatly increased. Within Hagenbach's immediate jurisdiction, the opposition to his measures took a definite form long before the Duke's arrival there. The various commissioners sent by Charles to inspect the quality of his bargain had all agreed in an urgent recommendation to the Duke to redeem, at the earliest possible moment, all the troublesome mortgages honeycombing his authority. Hagenbach, too, was fully convinced of the necessity for this measure, but he was not provided with sufficient money to accomplish it. In the spring of 1473, therefore, he resolved to lay a new tax on wine. This impost, called the bad penny, was bitterly resented for two reasons. The burden was oppressive to the vintners, and it was an illegal measure, as no sanction had been given by the local estates. Three towns, Thann, Ensensheim, and Brissac, declared that they were determined to refuse payment. Hagenmark marched a force into the Engelberg. A stronghold dominating Thann bombarded the town and took it easily. Thirty citizens were condemned to death as leaders in an iniquitous rebellion against the just orders of their lawful governor. Some of these, indeed, were pardoned, though their estates were confiscated, but five or six were publicly executed, and their bodies hung exposed to view on the marketplace as a hideous object lesson of the cost of resisting Burgundian orders. One execution sufficed to render Ensesheim submissive, but Brissac proved more obstinate. The magistrates there did not resort to force. They declared there was no need, for they were fully protected by the article of the Treaty of St. Omer which forbade arbitrary imposition of any tax on the part of the suzerain. Their determined refusal made lieutenant consent to refer the question to the Duke of Burgundy, and messengers were dispatched to Treves to represent the respective grievances of governor and governed. The collection of the tax was postponed until Charles could examine the situation. A determined effort to bring the independent town of Mulhouse under Burgundian sway was another act of 1473, fanning opposition to a white heat that forged organized resistance to any extension of Burgundian authority. 
For three years, Hagenbach had endeavored to convince the burghers of that imperial city that they would be wise to accept the duke's protection and have their debts paid. The latter were, indeed, oppressive, but there was fear lest protection might be more so, and conference after conference failed to produce the acquiescence desired by Hagenbach. In 1473, that zealous servant of Burgundy declared that if the burghers persisted in their refusal, he would resort to force. Their reply was that Mulhouse could not take such an important step without consulting her friends, the Swiss. Are the cantons going to help you pay your debts? was the sneering comment of Hagenbach. Mulhouse is a bad weed in a rose garden, a plant that must be extirpated. Its submission would make a charming pleasure ground out of the Sungau, Alsace, and Briesgau. The Duke knew no city which he would prefer to Mulhouse for a sojourn, were his further statements. Two days were given to the town council for an answer. Hagenbach remarked that it was useless to think that time could be gained until the mortgaged territories should return to Austria. Far from planning redemption, Duke Sissamond is now preparing to cede to Charles Le Temperaire as much again of his domain and vassals. Still, Mulhouse was not convinced that the only course open to her was to let Charles pay her debts and receive her homage. No answer was forthcoming in the two days, but ready scribes had prepared many copies of Hagenbach's letter, which were sent to all who might be interested in checking these proposals of Burgundy. On February 24, 1473, a Swiss diet met at Lausanne, and there the matter was weighed. Hagenbach's letter was shown to those who had not seen it, and methods of rescuing Mulhouse from her dilemma were carefully considered. Years ago, a union had existed between the forest cantons and the Alsatian cities. There were propositions to renew this alliance so as to present a strong front to the Burgundian neighbor. The cantons had enough to do with their own affairs, but the result of the discussion was that, on March 14th, a ten-year Alsatian confederation was formed in an imitation of the Swiss. The chief members were Basil, Komar, Mulhaus, Schledstadt, and two dioceses, and it is referred to as the base union or the lower union, the purposes being to guarantee mutually the rights of the contracting parties to meet for discussion on various questions and, specifically, to help Mulhouse pay her debts. A few days later, March 19th, there was a fresh proposition to make an alliance between this base union and the Swiss Confederation. This required a referendum. Each Swiss delegate received a copy of the articles to take back to his constituents for their consideration. No bond between the Confederation and the Union was, however, in existence at the time when Charles was approaching Alsace. Various conciliatory measures on his part had somewhat lessened the immediate opposition to him, but nevertheless, there were frequent conferences about affairs. Diets were almost continuous, and there were strenuous efforts to raise money to free Mulhouse from her hampering financial embarrassments. Hagenbach had not followed up his threats of immediate war measures, but it was known that he had obtained imperial authorization to assume the jurisdiction of Mulhouse, a step which her allies hoped to forestall by settling her debts. Strasbourg offered to contribute 600 florins, Bern and Soyer 700, Basel 400, while Komar, Schledstadt, Obernay, and Kaisersburg together hoped to raise another 400. A diet was called at Basel for December 11th, and Zurich and Lucerne were expected to enter into the Union. 
The tidings of the Duke's approach were undoubtedly a stimulus to these renewed efforts to make the League strong enough to withstand him. The sentiment expressed by the pious Neville, May God protect us from his mighty hand, voiced probably a widespread dread. When Charles entered Alsace, his escort was large enough to inspire fear, but there was no opposition to his advance, though consultations, now at one city, now at another, were frequent. The Duke paid little heed to their deliberations, underestimating their importance, while he was gracious to any words of welcome offered to him. Strasbourg sent him greetings, while he rested at Chatenois, and so did Colmar. The latter town expressed her willingness to receive him in an escort of one or two hundred, but was firm in her refusal to admit a larger force within her walls. By this precaution, Charles was baffled in his plot to gain possession of the town, and so passed on his way. On Christmas Eve, the traveler made a formal entry into Brissac, where a temporary court was established, and where audience was given to various embassies with the customary Burgundian pomp. Meanwhile, the troops, forced to camp without the walls, were a burden to the land, and seemed to have been more odious than usual to their unwilling hosts. The citizens of Brissac offered homage on their knees and had their hopes raised high by their suzerain's pleasant greeting, but they failed to obtain the hoped-for assurance that the Treaty of St. Omer should be observed in all respects. Among the envoys were many who undertook to remonstrate in a friendly fashion about the imposition of the bad penny tax on the Alsatians and the over-severity of Hagenbach's administration. The cause of Mulhouse, too, was urged, notably by Bern. The representations of these last envoys were received most courteously. The Duke rather thought that the city could be detached from the League, and therefore gave himself some trouble to establish friendly relations. To Mulhouse, too, his tone was conciliatory. He wrote a pleasant letter to the town, and dispatched a counselor thither who would, he assured them, arrange matters to their satisfaction. But an abortive coup d'etat on the part of the Burgundians, which would have given them possession of Basel, destroyed the effect of these reassuring phrases. The burghers were warned in time, looked to their defenses, and banished from their midst every individual suspected of Burgundian sympathies. Every newcomer was carefully scrutinized before he was admitted within the walls, and the Rhine was guarded most rigidly. The propriety of these precautions was soon proven. Charles ordered a review at Ensensheim, the official capital of the Landgraviate. Thither marched his troops from every quarter. Those from Sackingen, Laufen, and Waldschut found their shortest route over the bridge at Basel, and there they appeared and begged to be allowed to cross. Their sincerity was doubted, and the least foothold on the city's territory was sternly refused then and a week later when the request was renewed. The method of introducing friendly troops into a town and then seizing it by a sudden coup de main was what Charles had been suspected of plotting for Metz and later for Colmar, and there seems to be no doubt that a third essay of this rather stupid stratagem was planned, only to fail again, and this time to be peculiarly disastrous in its reflex action. The review took place and the strength of the Burgundian mercenaries was duly displayed to the Alsatians, but no satisfactory assurances were given to Brissac and the other towns that their suzerain would restrict his measures of taxation and administration to the stipulations of the contract of St. Omer. On the contrary, 
when charles passed on to burgundy it was plain to all that he had not restricted the powers of his lieutenant in any respect but rather had endorsed his general method of procedure one night was spent at tan and then the duke took his leave of the annexed region whose people had hoped so much from his visit to them in mid-january he arrived at Besançon, his winter journeying being wonderfully easy in the unprecedentedly mild weather hagenbach lost no time in proceeding to the levying of the impost now approved by the duke who had at the same time expressly ordered that the people were to be treated mildly and that summary punishment was to check all excesses on the part of the eight hundred picards employed by hagenbach to aid the tax collector the governor however saw no further need for gentle treatment or for respect to privileges in brissac municipal elections were arbitrarily set aside and officers appointed by the governor the corporation was curtailed of power and the burghers were forced to prepare to march against mulhouse having accomplished his duty to his own satisfaction hagenbach proceeded to give himself some relaxation his own marriage took place on january twenty fourth and he celebrated the occasion with great fêtes. it is of this period in hagenbach's life that the stories of gross excess are told it seems as though having once abandoned restraint towards the city his personal passions too were permitted to run riot and he spared no wife nor maid to whom he took a fancy as he had succeeded in impressing the bad penny on the little independent landowners he tried to extend it to the territory of the bishop of basil vehement was the opposition which was reported to the duke who promptly ordered his lieutenant to restore the prisoners he had taken and to cease his aggressions charles was not ready to meet the swiss and was willing to defer an issue but he was wholly ignorant of the real strength of the confederation hagenbach then proceeded to make a stronghold of brissac and waited for further action end of chapter eighteen recording by dory smith